That was special. Thank you very much. I'm always blessed by the wonderful music. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. I'm glad you're all still here. I got up earlier and thought, well, maybe when I get up there again, maybe everybody would have slipped out the back. As you do the math on the tithes in Israel, it doesn't take long to uh, come up with an annual amount of about 23 and a third percent that was given. And uh, that's pretty steep. That's pretty steep. You look at some churches that uh, will uh, go by a very strict tithing system. We've all been around one of those now and again. They even run into one. You can talk, uh, talk to Chris Nanini. There's one really big church down by the glades that has a tithe rap that they sing uh, there before their congregation. It's, it's something. It's really something. Uh, but in Luke 16, we arrive at a story of a very rich man and a very poor man. The poor man is named Lazarus. Let's just begin by reading the passage together in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over here, uh, from here to you, will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they may, uh, will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. This is a long passage. We're not going to get through it all today. Uh, but this is, this is going to be something as we begin to unpack what this looks like for this rich man and for Lazarus. There have been a number of books written, you might have read some yourself, by people who claimed that they have died and and visited heaven and then came back to visit us again. One is titled 90 Minutes in Heaven. There's another one called Heaven is for Real. I'm sure there is an assortment of many others that you might have read. These are two that I have personally read. Uh, Heaven is for Real is about a young boy who claims to have visited heaven, and it is claimed the boy was told by divine decree to return to tell his story to as many people as possible so that they could know that 
Heaven is for real. So his father helped him write a book. Of course, after some time, they later published for churches a a workbook to go along with their book, a study guide, that is. And then, of course, they eventually had to make a movie about it, a movie based on the book so that everyone could know that heaven is for real. Warning flags all over the place there. Why do you suppose, by comparison anyhow, why do you suppose people won't believe this book? It isn't, you know, as if Scripture isn't replete with information about heaven and about hell. Uh, and, and if we do, if what we do need is to read a written account of someone who, who died and then came back from the dead, if that's what we really need in order to believe, why didn't the little boy just tell everyone to go read the Bible, uh, the story about Jesus coming back from the dead? If that's what we really actually need. Um, one reason is that people just refuse, refuse to listen to Moses and the prophets, to the Word of God. They refuse. They won't listen to that. Um, they won't listen to Jesus, as we'll see in our story. Um, Another reason is, of course, at pointing people to Scripture to read it here, the eternal Word of God, well, that isn't going to provide as much income as a movie that grossed, I believe, over $101.3 million at the box office. Such books, folks, they're not written. They're not written because supplemental accounts of heaven or hell are necessary. It's not that we need more accounts of heaven or hell. It's about becoming famous. It's about making money. And that's what these fanciful stories are always about. They're, they're not about guiding people to heaven. How can we know that? How can we know that? Well, I've read those two, 90 Minutes in Heaven and Heaven is for Real. And in neither of those two books did they ever present how you would actually get to heaven. None of them talked about our alienation from God and our sin. None of them talked about Christ uh, who through his blood redeemed us from hell. Um, None of them talked about trusting only in Christ as the only way of salvation. Uh, they, They didn't include the necessary components of actually getting to the place that they're describing. God didn't send them to do that. They made fanciful claims that proposed things that are miraculous. You know, pe- people love to hear about that stuff. They, they love to hear that stuff sells. People in culture are, are memorized, mesmerized by the miraculous. Of course, Jesus repeatedly said that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. So someone saying that they came back uh, from the dead, that definitely is a sign that they will buy into. So maybe if, if, you know, if God would send someone back from the dead, just maybe then people will believe. Just maybe they'll believe. In our passage, Abraham is portrayed as saying, fat chance. Fat chance that sending someone back from the dead is going to help people believe. In another book, The 23 Minutes in Hell, I didn't read this one, maybe you did, a man named Bill Weiss claims to have been provided an experience in hell And at the end, Jesus tells him to return uh, to people so that they can all know that hell is for real. I wonder if any of these authors have ever read the words of Christ. The words of Christ spoken in uh, 
in Luke 16, where Abraham assures, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that is scripture, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That statement alone, that statement ought to drive a nail in the coffin of any idea that that God is going to be sending people in and out of heaven or hell in, in order to tell us about it. The only, the only convincing evidence of heaven and of hell that we need, according to Jesus, uh, it rises from the pages of Scripture. And we find some of that in our passage today. And if we refuse to buy that, if we just refuse to believe what Jesus has to say, what Scripture says, what the Bible tells us, um, if we've got to have some contemporary author with his book deal to tell us about his miraculous experience, then there's no hope. At that point, there is no hope. After all, if their experience was that essential to leading others to faith, how did Christ's church survive for almost 2,000 years without their book? It's not necessary. It's not needed. It's faith through the hearing of the Word of God. The reason that the church has flourished for over 2,000 years now, not quite 2,000 years, is because we have all the essential elements for faith, all the uh, essential elements for practice. It, it's right here. It's already in the Bible. It's been in print for almost 2,000 years. And, and in Luke 16, we have a scriptural account of an actual experience in hell. An actual one. In fact, this is the only personal testimony given in all of Scripture from someone who is in Hades. The only one in all of Scripture. Uh, It comes from a man, folks, that nobody, not even himself, thought that he would have been there. Nobody in Israel would have thought this type of man would have been there. No one would have expected it. He's a very rich man. He's a very prosperous individual. He is one who is thought of throughout his life um, as being very esteemed. He has been esteemed by others. In verse 19, Jesus describes him as a a rich man who habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. You know, now, contrary to the the poor preacher, the, the pauper named Jesus, you know, who lived off other people's donations, lived off charity as he was going around preaching, compared to Jesus, this man... This is somebody that the Pharisees would like. This is somebody that they would have admired. You know, remember, the narrative had just informed us back in verse 14 that the Pharisees, they were lovers of money. They loved money. This guy is right up their alley. He's one of their own. And his clothes, they were expensive. As the dying process for for turning them purple in that day, it was a very expensive process. Purple was a very costly garment in that day. His undergarments, they were made of fine linen, so so he was wearing the best of underwear, folks. He had it all. The nicest stuff. The the statement that he habitually dressed in this way uh, assured that he was ostentatious. You know, he, he never dressed down. He was always looking good. You know, today he'd be seen wearing only the finest suits of the finest Italian wool. His everyday experience was, 
Well, it's called lampros. The word means sumptuous. His joy was sumptuous. It also means magnificent splendor. This man lived in joyful splendor. And that Greek term gives the impression of, of a visible opulence. Everybody could see it. This guy was made of money. The modern equivalent today would be, well, fine cars, luxury properties, you know, fine, expensive things, Lear jets. Uh, his life would be really just as spectacular as anyone in Hollywood today. Anyone in Wall Street, this guy's life in that day was just as spectacular as anyone you would see on television. Um, you know, if a Pharisee were to see him, and they're listening to Jesus describe this person now, if the Pharisees were, were to see him walking down the street, they would say, now look at him. Look at him. Now there's a man, there's a man who has been blessed with the hand of God. Look at everything that he's got. Have you noticed in your flyer the title of today's message? The Prosperity Hoax. The Prosperity Hoax. Um, you know, the Pharisees could have even quoted Scripture to prove uh, their idea, saying Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor in the path of sinners. Uh, in whatever he does, Scripture says, he prospers. And I always quote Scripture to support whatever position you want. You can flash it across the bottom of the television screen. But you also have to look in so many places in Scripture where it talks about how the wicked prosper sometimes too. Sometimes they prosper even more. The story or parable, this is a culmination of, of a fiduciary lesson. On fiduciary is uh, fiduciary is a word the bankers used meaning being responsible with somebody else's money. If someone's given you advisement on how to uh, put away some money, if they have a fiduciary responsibility by law, that means they have to do what's in your best interest because the money's yours, and they cannot do what is in their own best interest, which has to do with fees and all kinds of other things. That's what a fiduciary responsibility is. Um, we have a fiduciary responsibility with the money that has been entrusted to us by God. We are in charge of His estate. We are stewards. Uh, remember back in verse 14, we watched the Pharisees as they scoffed at Jesus. They were laughing at Him. They scoffed at Him uh, uh, because this penniless preacher had publicly announced that you can't serve God and money. You know, you're either going to hate one and you're going to love the other. But you can't serve both God and mammon. And Jesus declared at that point, that which is highly esteemed among men, think of this rich, rich guy now, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And, a tr and the true indication of righteousness is an affinity to the timeless principles found in Scripture. This is where the, uh, the Pharisees had miserably failed. We were talking about last week, even on things such as marriage and other things, they explained away Scripture so that it would fit their lifestyle. They miserably failed to observe Scripture. 
Verse 15, that which is highly esteemed in the eyes of men is detestable in the sight of God. Verse 16, you must obey Moses and the prophets, for Scripture never fails, it never fades away. Uh, So this story of the rich man and his many brothers, the rich man and his many brothers, they are a representation of the Pharisees. It's a picture of them. It's supplied by Jesus as a graphic illustration of the ultimate destiny of the Pharisees and those who are like them. It's a, it's a vivid picture of everything he had been preaching through this whole chapter 16. And among the, the numerous lessons contained that we've studied together already, uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus is primarily a warning about how not to use your money. How not to use your money. Jesus said in this chapter, make friends for the kingdom through the, through the use of your money. Remember he called it unrighteous mammon. Unrighteous wealth. That was in verses 8 and 9. He told us to be faithful stewards of what is entrusted to us by God. That is verse 12. And warning uh, to serve only one master, God. That is verse 13. So in context, this is what the parable is explaining. All the principles that he has just gone over with us to be good stewards. It's, it's not primarily or mainly given to, to tell us what the conditions of hell are. There are plenty of other places in Scripture that tell us uh, about the conditions of hell, how it gets so hot. It's not meant to scare us into heaven, though it should. It explains primarily how and why a person is sent there. What type of attitude puts a person there? And this might be a little bit uncomfortable for us today. In Scripture, you know, whenever a man or a woman prospers, whenever they prosper... God has not granted us wealth for self-aggrandizement. Not to draw attention to ourself. It's not so that we can be esteemed by others and everybody can see how much we have. In fact, in our next chapter, Luke is going to record Jesus telling a rich young ruler, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. That's coming up here in a few weeks. And when God grants wealth, Jesus repeatedly answered in Luke what it is for. He has told us through this whole central section of Luke, several chapters that we've been studying, what money is for. It's not to store in barns, but to serve God faithfully. And in verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's, there's a verse that probably summarizes this for the church as good as any. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 7, it uh, states for us, This principle of generosity in the Bible is nothing new. It's not something new with the church. It's exactly what the Mosaic Law had always prescribed. I'll read it for you there. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him. This is not a section talking about the tithe. 
You shall be generous. You should generously lend him sufficiently for his need and whatever he lacks. You shall generously give to him. And your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. This is going to play into our rich man right here. This is what the law required. Generous and ready to share. We studied that Deuteronomy chapter 15 several months ago, earlier in the spring, and and discovered that tithing was never symbolic of generosity. Never symbolized or indicated generosity. Tithing in Israel was a bare minimum. It was a minimum to keep their theocratic form of government operating, functioning. It provided for the priests, It provided for their court system. It provided for distribution to the poor. Uh, The priests were, were most likely put in charge of those types of social distributions. It was their form of government. It was a theocracy that was governed by the principles of the scriptures. It was prescri- uh, the tithe was prescribed by the Mosaic law so that the Pharisees uh, meticulously tithed. They meticulously tithed. Jesus said, carefully dividing even to the point of their spices, the smallest parts of their spices, their dill, their mint, their cumin. The Pharisees were meticulous tithers, Matthew 23, verse 23, which probably emphasized how most of them did not dispense a smidgen more for justice or for mercy or for righteousness sake you know i'm certain a rich man in the story who who enjoyed being uh, esteemed by others esteemed in the eyes of men i'm sure he tithed no doubt about it that he tithed he he's a personification of the pharisees in fact he probably uh, had them blow the metaphorical uh, metaphorical trumpets on the street corner when he tithed probably made a pretty big deal about it Uh, this is what many of the rich people do when they give. You know, if you follow the financial news or, or anything in the regular news, you've probably seen this. You'll, you'll find a guy like Warren Buffett. And if you followed it all the news over the last 10 years, uh, Buffett has given $28 billion to qualifying charities. Somehow when he does it, there's always a film crew nearby. I don't know how that works. You know, I don't have a beef with with Warren Buffett. I don't have a beef with Jimmy Buffett. They're not Christians. I don't expect a whole lot different from non-Christians, from non-believers. But Warren, he's estimated to still be worth over $70 billion. Here's what I ask. How much do you need How much money do you need to live? This is one reason that the tithe could never serve as a barometer of generosity. And no longer being under a theocracy, the New Testament simply calls Christians to be generous and then applauding anyone who gives beyond their ability. So, So if I were to use an example today as I did in the spring, a different number I think, 
But if I were to use an example today of a Christian who earns $500,000 a year, say they're a successful lawyer, attorney, doctor, whatever, um, would giving 10%, would giving 50000 a year for them be generous? You know, 50000 would really be a large amount of money really for any of us. You put that in a suitcase, people are like, whoa, that is a lot of money. That's a, that's a tenth. But would it still leave that person with $450,000 to display? That's a whole lot more money. The 90% is a whole lot more money. So I think most could agree for such a person, depending upon their personal situation, obviously, a tithe would not reach the threshold of generous. To live off $450,000 a year, that's not a sacrifice. Comparatively, consider a widow. Maybe a widow who subsides on $10,000 a year. That's $830 a month, by the way. Um, in our economy, you know, which effectually demands electricity, you need a phone. You need some sort of transportation to get back and forth to the doctor. You, you need to, to secure some kind of health care. And you've got to feed yourself and other things on $830 a month. Would she be able to give $83? You know, honestly, if she did, that would be very generous. That would be very generous. But, but in my opinion, that would be giving beyond her ability. But if she didn't tithe, there would surely be some, some who might be making $500,000 a year, who would say, well, you know, well, she just needs to learn to live on a little bit less. Maybe she needs to pray a little more. You know, have a little faith. Maybe God will bless her. She'll just have a little more faith. You see the problem here? Serious problem. You know, she'd just have a little more faith you hear this on, on TV all the time and, and some of these big churches. You have just a little more faith. God's going to open up the, the gates of heaven. Someone who already has nothing. Our government, it's not a theocratic system. Uh, this scenario that I just shared with you should reveal why the New Testament never enforces a tithe on the church. It can't be a barometer of generous. It can't function as a barometer of generous. Instead, the New Testament prescribes generosity just as each has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. That's not a tithe. Why is it not a tithe? Because generosity can't and never even has in Israel been a measure of generosity. Now for some pastors, boy, this is sacred ground. You can't, you can't tell people they don't have to tithe. You'll let them off easy. Let me tell you folks, you look at Scripture and the parameters for generosity, generosity, that, that, that threshold of generosity, whatever that may be, that's not letting people off easy.
You know, over the years, and this is among many churches that I've encountered, uh, not here, really, but over the years, do you know, and I, I've been, as a missionary, I was around a lot of different places. You hear a lot of different discussion. Some you can impact, others you can't. Um, but you know who the ones are that most fervently push the pastor? Sometimes the pastor is under a lot of pressure in this to preach the tithe. Um, do you know who often, not always, it's not always them, but who often pressure the pastor to forcibly require everyone in the church to tithe, even count their tithes? I heard it over here, the rich. The rich are normally the ones. Usually it's the wealthiest people. Some want it strictly enforced on everybody. Why? Because the tithe lets the rich off easy. It lets them off easy. While at the same time it disproportionately affects the impoverished and the sick. Usually it's the richest people who truly benefit from uh, an established rigid tithing system as a standard in the church. Everybody has to tithe. I don't care who you are, they'll say everybody has to tithe. Some beg for it to be declared as gospel. Why? Because if they're making a million dollars a year, the tithe leaves them with 900000 to spend however they like on whatever they like, whatever type of purple clothes and linen underwear they want to have. And they, at the same time, incorrectly conclude that 10% is the universal, timeless standard of generous, of being generous. It's not. That was the error of the Pharisees. This was the error of the rich man in this parable, who along with his brothers, as I said earlier, are representative of the Pharisees. And since Jesus is speaking to and and directing this rebuke at the Pharisees, we can safely conclude that this rich man in our story, as a personification of them, he tithed. He gave his 10%. He had the Pharisaical approach to giving. Therefore, he meticulously carved out the 10% that he felt he had to give, and then he lived ostentatiously on the rest. Now I can spend something on me. While Matthew 23, verse 23 says, neglecting the weightier things of the law that required justice and mercy and righteousness. And at the same time, meanwhile, he could just declare, you know, well, I've done my part. Why don't everybody else do their part? We've heard at different pastor seminars that we've gone to, talking to people at booths and other things, you hear it all the time. Well, you know, if everybody in the church would just tithe, the churches wouldn't have any financial problems anymore. We had one other that said, well, you know, the reason that churches aren't doing well is because they don't have the Sunday evening service. So they need to have that so they can pass the plate once again. I would say all of God's desires would be met whether we've orchestrated them in our minds for the church or whatever our bills are or whatever outreaches we do all of God's desires would be met if we would all just be generous if we'd all reach the threshold of generous the Pharisees were well, they're pretty successful people we talked about a couple of weeks ago how most of them were professionals financial advisors different types of businessmen and other things they surely were not poor um, do you think that this rich man who gave his full tenth and had a, 
uh, you think he had a generous heart with the other 90%? We're going to find out in a minute. In a minute, we're going to see how he treated Lazarus. But one thing we do know, he had a lot more than he actually needed. You can tell that by the way he lived. He had way more than he needed. Um, it may have, been, may have been appropriated to other things. It might have been appropriated to fancy properties and, and expensive cars and, and mansions and other things. And he might have had a lot of habits that his money was appropriated to. In fact, you run into a lot of people in Hollywood today living in mansions and they'll say they're broke. You know, I can't even pay my tax bill where some of their property tax bills are as much as many of us make in a year, right? And they'll say, well, I don't have any money. No, they've misappropriated their money. That's what the rich man has done in our passage here. He's misappropriated his funds. Um, Was he a good steward with what God gave him? That's the lesson we're learning in chapter 16. No. No, he's not a good steward. Context assures us he is not. Um, But before we examine how, just how stingy this man was, in your mind you're probably asking, would a tenth meet the threshold of generosity for me? Not me, you. That's what you're thinking, right? Would a tenth meet the threshold of generosity for me? <laughs> We're not living under a theocratic government, uh, not as Israel did. America is a constitutional republic, which extracts taxes in all kinds of other ways in order to function the courts and and other systems and other things. Uh, Our our American system, it's not set on a tithe. Uh, This is just one more reason the church is dispensational, or this church is dispensational. We recognize that there is a difference between Israel and the church. There is a distinction on many things between Israel and the church. But did you know... You might find this interesting. It remains somewhat unclear how the tithing system worked in Israel. Say, well, how so? Listen to this. Tithes were primarily the first fruits of the harvest. They, they were, they, it was a percentage of the fruits of harvest. Grapes and figs and, and, and all types of foods and, and, and the fruit of the land, the flowing of milk and honey. And God promised them if you... Give the tithe, you'll continue to have uh, a good, bountiful harvest. We're not living under a theocratic system. Tithes were primarily of harvest. Tithes were a percentage of grain, oil, and nuts that were given to support the Levitical priesthood, priests who didn't own land, sojourners or foreigners who didn't own land, and the poor who didn't own land. A very familiar passage in Malachi says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, right? Who's that talking to? It's talking to the land owners, those who have a fruit of the land. That's Malachi 3 verse 10. What about the desperately poor who didn't have any land? What about the Levitical priests who didn't have any of their own land? Did they have to tithe? Were the poor widow Naomi and Ruth the Moabitess, who was a foreigner, were they required to tithe in Israel? You know, evidence in Scripture seems to suggest that the sojourner, that would be like Ruth, and the widow, that would be like Naomi, 
weren't required to tithe. Where do I get that? It comes from our scripture reading earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 12, which says, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, those are the priests who didn't have their own land, to the sojourner, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Let me just say this. Christians are not under the laws of tithing any more than we are circumcision or dietary restrictions. The New Testament supersedes the Old Testament principles, uh, those principles of tithing, and prescribes generosity not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's the New Testament standard, and we're not under a theocracy. Regardless, even in Israel, the Levites... Uh, the, the priests, that is, the orphan, the sojourner, the crippled, the beggars, the poor, were exempt from paying tithes. None of them owned land. You know, personally, I get a little aggravated today, not much, but a little bit, when rich people today who have land or properties and a lot of money, trust funds, whatever it may be, that they tell the poor that the law says to tithe and that God is going to bless you through it. He will bless you in ways through it, through giving and through generous giving, if, you're, if you can do that. That is true. But the law actually commanded the wealthy landowners to tithe and suggested that the poor and the widows were going to be blessed through them, not their own tithe. Not the poor widow's tithe. She was to be blessed by the tithe of those who actually had. Regardless, you know, the threshold of generosity, it's far less. No matter what way you cut it, it is far less for the widow than it is for the landowner. No doubt about it. And even in Israel, the poorest were not givers of tithes. They were receivers of tithes. The U.S. is a prosperous country for most of us. I understand there's some people struggling here too. I've talked to some folks that aren't doing well, aren't doing well at all, and our heart goes out to you. It really does. Um, But in a prosperous country like this, is a 10% threshold generous? You know, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Um, But it's not if you're spending 40% of your income on fancy cars and fancy clothes and fancy homes and everything else, if that's where 40% of your income is going, then 10% isn't generous. I don't know what is generous for you. I don't know at all. But if you look at verse 15, Jesus assured the Pharisees that God knows your heart. He knows your heart. I don't think that preachers, even the ones I greatly admire on the radio, I listen to quite a bit of radio preaching, not as much as I once did. I don't have as much time. You probably do. And uh, I don't think that preachers, sound preachers now, are transparent enough about their giving. I think there needs to be more guidance about giving. Uh, You know, I wanted guidance. When I was a new Christian, I wanted some guidance. What are the principles? What should I be giving in America? Uh, what should I do? And I rarely hear people talk about it, so I will say this. When it comes to church giving 
and other benevolent giving to the poor, other requirements of Scripture, 10% would not reach the threshold of generosity for me and my wife. It would not. We are both healthy. We are both working, at least at this time. We don't have any children. We don't carry a lot of debt. We, uh, we've we're in relatively good health. Giving away only a tenth of our income, that would not be generous. That would be shameful, to be just quite honest, in this America that we live in, knowing the type of suffering there is in the church and around the world. It would be shameful. For our current situation, which could change, one of us could lose a job, hopefully not me, um, hopefully not her either. You know, with Rita's back, she's a dental hygienist, she can work for a certain period of time. She has a certain time of, of productivity. It could quickly change. How much is generous for us? You want to know exactly? We know. And Scripture tells us, God knows. He knows the heart. Um, this is why the New Testament doesn't enforce a tithe on the church. You know, 10, 10% may be unachievable for the poorest amongst us. It may be just about right, or maybe even generous for some of us. For others, like the guy in our story, it would be shameful. It would be shameful to walk around in purple and only give that much. Here's the greatest misfortune in all of this. This, this is really unfortunate, knowing that the tithe even in Israel wasn't ever considered generous. Such a large segment of evangelicalism has preached tithing for so long, straight 10%. Instead of spirit-filled generosity, which Scripture actually calls for, there are scores of tithers out there Scores of people who are cutting out 10% who are going to end up exactly where this rich guy goes. They think that they have met the requirement of God by carving out a section, but not living generously because their hearts were never regenerated and they don't give joyously uh, or joyfully. Um, <laughs> I thought about this today. I'm glad I'm not rich. Think of the responsibility of handling money in God's economy if you were very wealthy. We've got everything we need. We've got food. We've got covering. We've got comforts. We have our Lord. Um, I'm fine with it. I don't need to be rich. I don't need to be rich. I have enough. Um, I asked you earlier, do you think that generous describes the heart of this guy who wasted his money on purple clothes and living in splendor? It's not generous. Not generous. Verse 2 describes his grand estate. It's walled, and at the entry, there, there stands at the front of his gate a pylona. That's Greek. Uh, we, we say pylon. You following me? And in Greek architecture, and probably in this context, it implies a fortified gate. This man had a fortified gate out in front of his estate. Uh, the gate will show itself whether he had a heart for God or not. Because another man, a poor man named Lazarus, he, he's covered with ulcerated sores. He's laid outside this rich man's gate. He's laid outside. Now, this man named Lazarus, he's not an able-bodied worker. He's not trying to take advantage 
of a welfare system. He's not cheating others. The verb laid, it's in the passive tense. That means that he was laid there by others. This man was a cripple. Covered with sores and a cripple who couldn't even get himself to the gate. He had to be taken there, actually dumped there by others who probably couldn't take care of him. Probably didn't have enough and probably said, you know what? We'll leave it here. This guy could probably spare a little change, right? And and as we close, this ought to prick our hearts right here. In verse 20, Lazarus was longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. You know, the the fact that Lazarus remains uh, in a longing state assures us His need is never satisfied by this rich man. The reference to even the dogs, you know, the dogs in those days, most of them were scavengers. They went around scavenging, especially if they're outside the gate with Lazarus, uh, street dogs. Even the dogs were paying more attention to Lazarus than was this rich man. John Calvin writes, What could be more monstrous than to see the dogs taking charge of a man to whom his neighbor is paying no attention? And what is more, to see the very crumbs of bread refused to a man perishing of hunger? Scripture tells us it's an awful, it's an awful sign, a warning sign when when a wealthy person or a wealthy culture will not take care of the poorest amongst them. They will not show, the ones who won't show mercy. The prophet Ezekiel wrote to Jerusalem, unfaithful Jerusalem at this point, saying, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. How would you like your sister to be called Sodom? He's saying, You're like Sodom. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, meaning the other cities around Sodom, Abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it, says the Lord. You know, we all know about Sodom's immorality. Did we realize that what led to that immorality, the stage before that immorality, is that they were unwilling to take care of the poorest people in need, while they sat in relative comfort and ease. They despised the poor and needy. Um, The Lord is not pleased. The Lord is not pleased when the poor are not taken care of. I even noted the fact that Sodom, it wasn't even a Jewish city. These were Gentiles. In a Gentile nation, that will not take care of the poorest is an abomination in the sight of God. I'm going to pause right there. Um, I don't want to rob us of this uncomfortable moment. Really, why keep going on, get our mind on something else? But up until this point, the Pharisees, they're tracking with Jesus. They're following us like, yeah, this rich guy, we like him. That poor guy, Lazarus, laying at the gate, yeah, he was probably a sinner. You know, they always made accusations of who sinned, this guy or his parents, they said of the blind man. They probably thought that, that 
this rich man was pleasing in the sight of God. He was righteous, and Lazarus was the sinner in the story. Uh, I'm sure Lazarus was a sinner. We all are, but at least he's righteous. They have no complaint with Jesus' story at this time. They felt no compassion even for Lazarus. Uh, They're completely unprepared for what Jesus is going to bring next. (laughs) Completely unprepared. As, As a man, Jesus never lacked compassion. As God He assured in every situation, even when there were 5,000 people that needed to eat, that there would be plenty of baskets left over. Um, Plenty of leftovers where everyone could be fed. So there's no fear for us to behave godly. God will take care of everything that we need. The biblical demand for our being generous remains the same. God's promise is that he will replenish when we are generous. I heard Chuck this morning as he was teaching the Bible Life Group over in the other building. Meets the hour before this. You should try joining it. It's really good stuff. Um, I get I get to hear part of it, but he was talking this morning at one section about how God pilfered the Jews as they were leaving Egypt, and here the Jews are walking out. He said they they took everything with them, everything that wasn't nailed down. They took with them out of Egypt. Can God provide, even pilfering the Egyptians, God can provide everything that we need. So he says in Scripture, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Now I say this, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. That's the promise with giving. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having in all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, for it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. You know, Jesus, as with the Old Testament, when we give generously, he promises that he's going to replenish what we need, store up treasure in heaven. Um, we need to pray that we would not behave as this rich man. In closing words, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is what Gerald, the book Gerald's teaching our youth now. The wise King Solomon wrote, The words of the wise men are like goads. The masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. And these wise words um, given to us by Solomon include the prophets and then the collections of the wisest men uh, of his day uh, who, who'd acted godly and who history had judged as, as wise. And, you know, we can think of classics today like Augustine, John Calvin. Uh, you can read stuff from the Puritans and John Bunyan. And there's so much fertile material to read. They're good writers. Um, Solomon says they're like goads. That means they're sharp. They poke us. But he also says that they're like well-driven nails. They hold us together. That's what Scripture does. Uh, Reading the monumental works provides tremendous benefit to the Christian. But then he writes, Beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. And excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. And when you walk into a Christian bookstore today, and you see things like, Heaven is for Real, the title there immediately ought to have red flags. 
I already know it's for real. The Bible tells me it's for real. But you see, thousands of books about that thick, not a lot of thought went into them. Most of the time, not all. But of authors who really don't have anything to add to Scripture. Many even contradict the historic Christian faith and are dangerous. You know, there are notorious exceptions. There are good resources out there today, but the vast majority don't add any spiritual substance to our lives. Here's why I bring that up. How many books do we need to read before we get serious about giving? How many flimsy paperbacks about evangelism do we need to digest before we actually go out and tell people about Christ? I used to have a stack at Dallas Seminary of uh, these books about three-quarters of an inch wide on evangelism. took up a whole shelf. I looked at those books one day when we were selling books for the garage sale thing. I said, you know what, i got a whole bunch of books. Why don't I just obey and go out and do it? What information could a person write concerning heaven or hell that cannot possibly be found in the Bible? Maybe what the church needs to be told is, why don't you start reading this and obey what I have told you? Solomon writes, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to everyone. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or or for evil. God, have mercy on us. Let's pray. Father, we see you on the pages of Scripture with many warnings, Lord, uh, many lessons teaching us about where we fail uh, and, uh, Lord, where you show your grace and your mercy. And Lord, as uh, we think about giving to those who are in need, especially uh, your church, your, your, those who you love, those who are suffering, those who have, um, Lord, suffered loss. We even pray again uh, for the island over there in the Bahamas or the islands and, and think, what if we had been in that situation? Would sh- someone show mercy to me? And Father, as we think of Lazarus laying outside the gate and nobody paying attention to him, Father, uh, let that not be us. Let that not be us, Lord. Have mercy upon us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.